Okay, time for the main message this morning. And uh, we'll be reading from Matthew chapter 13, verses 24 to 30, just to begin this sermon today. And you'll, uh, you'll notice that it was uh, part of what was read for us this morning by uh, Morris uh, in the Bible reading. So we're looking at Matthew chapter 13, verse 24, as we continue our look at some parables that the Lord has given us. And today we're looking at the parable of the wheat and the tares. Okay, Matthew chapter 13, verse 24. Another parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man which sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat, and went his way. But when the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, then appeared the tares also. So the servants of the householder came and said unto him, Sir, didst not thou sow good seed in thy field? From whence then hath it tares? He said unto them, An enemy hath done this. The servants said unto him, Wilt thou then that we go and gather them up? But he said, Nay, lest while ye gather up the tares, ye root up also the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and in the time of harvest I will say to the reapers, Gather ye together first the tares, and bind them in bundles, and burn them. But gather the wheat into my barn. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, and we'll commit this time to him. Father, we thank you for your precious word. We thank you that we can learn and grow through it. And we pray that you would help us to grow today. Father, we pray that your spirit would teach us directly those things that you would have us to learn, that the fruit in our lives may be born for you, and that we would continue to grow stronger in the faith. We thank you once again for this time. We thank you that we have the freedom to meet in this way, and the freedom, rather, to worship you. We thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll share a couple of uh, introductory stories with you, <clears throat> just to commence with. In ancient Egypt, we're looking at first, according to a story from an ancient Egyptian papyrus, in around 1450 BC, an Egyptian army under Pharaoh Thutmos III and his general Jehuti besieged the Canaanite city of Yapu, which later became uh, known as Joppa or Jaffa. Unable to gain entry, they resorted to deception. Jehudi hid several soldiers in baskets and had the baskets delivered to the town with a message that the Egyptians were admitting the defeat and were sending them tribute. The people of uh, Yapu accepted the gift and celebrated the end of the siege. Once inside the city, though, the, the hidden soldiers emerged from the baskets, opened the city gates, and admitted the main Egyptian army. The Egyptians then conquered the city. That sounds very similar to the Greek uh, story of Troy. In ancient Rome, during the Gallic Wars in 52 BC, Roman commander Julius Caesar attempted to engage the forces of tribal leader Vercingetorix, Tariq, sorry, in open battle in what is now around the centre of France. This fellow, Vercingetorix, kept the river Ilay between Caesar's forces and his own. So he was on one side of the, of the river and Caesar was on the other side of the river and he was stopping Caesar's army from trying to cross. So what he did, he actually had got his troops to destroy and remove all the bridges that were crossing the river so Caesar's army couldn't come across. 
And what he did is that whenever Caesar's army would move to one direction or the other, on the other side, his army would mirror them. So if they ever tried to cross uh, a river, he would have them slaughtered because they, uh, they wouldn't be able to cross quickly across the water. So what did Caesar do? Caesar responded by hiding 40 of his 60 cohorts or groups of uh, soldiers and arranged the remaining 20 to look as if they were his army moving left and right on the other side of the bank. But what he did, he made those 20 go in one direction away from a particular area and he sent the 40 in the other direction in a place where they couldn't see them. The 20 cohorts continued to march along the river and his fellow's troops continued to march and mirror them. Caesar then led the 40 hidden cohorts back to a repairable bridge. And that bridge they fixed and he led his troops across that bridge and then sent for the other 20 cohorts to join him. Now that he was already on the other side of the river uh, as his enemy, Caesar was able to engage them and defeat them. Now, why did I tell you these couple of stories? Well, in warfare, there are many tactics that are deployed by leaders of various armies that are designed to fool the enemy. In the first case, the Egyptian uh, uh, general um, tried to fool the people of the, that Canaanite town to say, we're not fighting anymore, we've given up. And he made it as if they, were, they had gone. Uh, Julius Caesar tried to fool the other, the other army uh, into believing that they were marching in one direction, but he had sent another group in the opposite direction and he was able to cross the actual uh, river and defeat them. So in throughout all of history, leaders have uh, of various armies um, have deployed tactics that are designed to fool the enemy, to deceive it uh, and to dishearten the troops. The greatest military commanders over the ages have used things such as diversions, feints, and ruses in many ways that have given them an advantage over their enemies. Why am I telling you that? I'm telling you that because if the world has been a stage for countless wars between men and countries and ideologies, then according to the Bible, there is a spiritual war that is going on around us and that is between the forces of heaven and the fallen angels. If the generals of earthly armies can use deception and lies to gain the upper hand over their enemies, imagine the ability of an incredibly intelligent, powerful, invisible and malevolent spirit who has been around for around more than 6,000 years, who wants nothing less to complete the subjugation of mankind and de to defeat God himself. That's the devil. Today's sermon examines a parable which speaks about sp that spiritual warfare. The enemy, the devil, is in the business of deception and counterfeit. And of course he would be. Jesus called him a liar and the father of lies. So let's have a look at what the Lord is teaching through this passage today um, in what has been called, or what is commonly called, the parable of the wheat and the tares. And just to be just to be plain, tares are really just weeds, okay? They don't grow any wheat, 
they are just weeds, okay? They may look the same as when they start growing, but then later on, the wheat develops a, a head and with the extra wheat on it, and the tares don't. So let's just recap quickly. This parable is about a certain man who sowed good seed in his field, which was wheat. But during the night, an enemy comes, or enemy came, um, of this particular man and, and sowed and threw around um, seeds of weeds. When the servant of the field owner saw the weeds growing up in the middle of the wheat, they came to him and said to him, and mind you, the, the, this was not straight after, this was a while after, because it says that the fruit was already showing, the actual seeds were already showing on the actual thing, it was starting to grow. They said to him, what's going on? Why have you sowed, didn't you sow good seed in your field? And the man said, yeah, I know I did, but I know what else has happened over here. The man knew what had happened. And when they said to him, why don't we pull them all out now? He goes, no, no, don't pull them out now because you're going to you ruin the, the young and tender uh, wheat. Um, wait until it's all ready for harvest and then do it at that time. And he says, well, then you would gather up the weeds, burn them all, and then collect the wheat into his barn. And this is uh, one of those parables where Jesus gives us the explanation of it, which is amazing. If you have your Bibles, you want to turn with me there. In verses 37 to 43, in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus gives the explanation of the parable. And it's quite simple when you look at it. Um, but there are many important lessons that we can learn from it. So in Matthew 13, 37, it says there, He answered and said unto them, He that sowed the good seed is the Son of Man. That's him. The field is the world. The good seed are the children of the kingdom. In other words, saved believers. But the tares are the children of the wicked one. The wicked one being the devil. The enemy that sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the world and the reapers are the angels. As therefore the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so shall it be in the end of this world. The Son of Man shall send forth his angels and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and them which do iniquity, and shall cast them into a furnace of fire, and there shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. Who are the ears to hear, let him hear. Now, I want to just uh, remind us, at right at the beginning of this thing, um, before we go into this parable, that Jesus is speaking about one important topic. And that is, if you look, if you looked at back at the original verse, he's speaking about the kingdom of God. What the, what is the kingdom of God like? Specifically, the how it looks and grows within this world that is fallen, sinful, and generally devoid of the truth. Okay, so when Jesus is describing uh, this is like this is what the kingdom of heaven is like, or the kingdom of God is like, what he's describing is how it's going to behave. How it's going to look in this world. He's not talking about heaven itself, like up there. What he's talking about is what's happening over here. Because what's happening is God is God is has his kingdom spreading in this world. But this world has another God whom people worship. And uh, the Bible calls him the prince of the power of the air. He's also called the God of this world. And this world, we need to understand 
He's filled with darkness and he's fallen according to what the Bible says. So God's kingdom is like something that's growing in an enemy environment. Luke chapter 17, verse 20, uh, shares with us something over here um, about people who did not understand what was going on with the kingdom of heaven. You see, when Jesus came, they were expecting him, many of the Jews, especially the ones in, in power and authority, were expecting him to come with an army, a, a powerful army that would conquer the Romans and and uh, and, and restore their, their um, glory as in the days of King Solomon. But God's plan was different. See, he knew the greatest need of mankind was not to conquer and to and to be freed from the oppression of the Romans, he knew and understood that man's greatest need was to be saved from sin. So Jesus came as a lamb in order for our sin to be paid for so that we could be given eternal life. You see, we couldn't be granted eternal life. We are eternal beings, but we couldn't be granted eternal life unless Jesus first actually cleanses us of all of our sin, because God cannot allow sin to exist in heaven. But there were some who didn't understand this. Have a listen to what Jesus tells them, who confused what they were expecting from God. Luke chapter 17, verse 20 says, And when he was demanded of the Pharisees, when the kingdom of God should come, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God cometh not with observation. In other words, it's not like something you can see, like a big army is going to come. He said, Neither shall they say, Lo here or lo there. There it is. Or, For behold, the kingdom of God is within you. Now keep that in mind as we continue to look at these parables. Because last week and the week before, when we looked at the parable of the sower, what the seed, where the seed was being sown was the heart, that which is within you. And Jesus is teaching the same thing again. While men concerned themselves in the world with power and land and, and all those types of things and worldly things, God concerns himself firstly with the heart. And that's what God is trying to fix. In fact, God says, I'm going to give you a new heart. That's why Jesus came. When Jesus returns, you see, this is only halfway there. When Jesus returns, the Bible tells us he will come as that conquering king. And then both heaven and earth will be completely under God's control. Whereas now the devil still has um, a, a fair amount of control and still deceiving people. As in the, the previous parable. Jesus is the sower of the good seed. The seed now represents not just the word, but now represents those who have received the word and been saved and born again. He calls these the children of the kingdom. So the seed is no longer the word. It's actually the word implanted in a believer that's actually already born fruit. And that person is genuinely saved. So the good seed, if you look at it by definition, is the church of Jesus in the world. 
the good seed are the kingdom, are the children of the kingdom, and the children of the kingdom are all the people that are in the church. Now, I'm not talking about a denomination. I'm not talking about being a Baptist. I'm not talking about anything else. I'm talking about the church as the body of every believer in the world. You see, though we collect together as a local body, and we haven't been collecting together as a local body for a while, although we collect online, uh, we come together at Faith Baptist Church, we are ultimately connected to every other believer in the world through faith in Jesus Christ. You see, there is a church that exists all around the world and may come from various denominations for people who have actually put their faith in Jesus and have been saved. We are a local community of believers that have come together in our area, but there are plenty of others all around the world that have done a similar thing. We are connected to them in that we are in Christ together. One day, there will be an enormous gathering of the, the children of the kingdom or the church of Christ, and that will be when we are gathered up together in the end. And that's going to be a huge church service when every believer is joined together. So the good seed are those who are saved, those who are born again, those who have received the word of God and have been changed and have now become the children of God. So, and it says there, the field is the world. Yeah, the field is the world. You see, you notice what it says that the, the man sowed good seed in his field. The, the, the field is owned by God. He is the rightful owner of this world. What's interesting, though, is that when he came, when the Lord Jesus Christ came to this uh, earth, to this world, and sowed good seed with the word, with the truth, he was sowing to his own, that even his own rejected him. Turn with me to John chapter 1, verse 10 to 13. John chapter 1, verse 10 to 13. As I just make this specific, specific point. The field belongs to the Lord. Notice the Lord is the man who, who sowed good seed. He sowed good seed in his field. This field doesn't really belong to the devil. He has stolen this field from the Lord and he has stolen mankind from him. John chapter 1 verse 10 says, He was in the world and the world was made by him and the world knew him not. That's Jesus. That's the Son of God. He came unto his own and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them he gave power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You see, it's God's will that man would be made, would be saved and be made the sons or the children of God. And it's those who believe on his name, as many as received him. So you'll notice that it says that he came, he was made, he made the world and he came to his own, which were the Jewish people, which was Israel, but they didn't even receive him. But it's the scriptures tell us that as many as do receive him, which means those who recognize that he is the king, the son of God and the savior of the world, as many as receive him, to them he gave power to become the sons of God, those who believe on his name. 
and we were not born by the will of man. We were not born of blood, which means you don't inherit this thing. It's God's will that you would uh, you would be saved. Okay, so as many as received him, and that's God's will for us. If the good seed are the Christians who bear good fruit, the bad seed are the so-called Christians who do not bear fruit. So there are then two types of people that exist within this thing we commonly call the church or Christianity, the true and the false. So within Christianity, there is the true and the false. Now, what's one thing I want you to notice over here is that when the angel said and noticed that there was a difference between those two, because the angels are able to see what's going on spiritually, whereas we can't, they said, all right, how about we pull them out now? And the Lord said, no, wait until the end. So what ends up happening is that both those seeds, the good and the bad, are given every opportunity to grow and develop right to the end, but they are fundamentally different plants. So this parable is not about trying to be good or trying to produce good fruit or trying harder at being a Christian. The fruit is only determined by the type of plant that you are. You are either saved or you are either lost. This is the story of salvation. And only those saved genuinely, genuinely belong in the church. There, but the, this parable is telling us that within the church, within the, the Christ, what we call Christianity in the world, there are others who are in there who aren't actually saved. And so this parable confirms the salvation message. Salvation changes who you are. It's not about trying harder to be a Christian. It's about God making you one by simple faith. You see, God turns the enemy into a son. God is able to turn the sinner into a saint. It's God that makes us his children, not us who earn it. A weed cannot become wheat. A weed can't produce fruit, can't produce more wheat. As hard as it tries, a person can't become a child of God by their efforts. Only Jesus can save you. That is one of the most important messages, one of the important lessons I pray you'll get from this, this parable today. But you'll notice that the bad seed, which are the children of the wicked one, were sown directly into the same ground as the good seed, the children of the kingdom. Why? Why would the devil sow his followers in the middle of where God's children are planted? Well, there's a very simple answer to that. He wants to weaken the church and to destroy it. He wants to limit the work of God that God is able to do through those, those people or that organization or that church. He wants the church corrupted so that it struggles to fulfill its purpose. One thing about good wheat is that it grows to produce more good wheat. Okay, so if you plant a good 
seed in the ground. It will grow, the stalk will grow, the head will, uh, will grow, and then in that will be more good wheat. But if it is surrounded by weeds, if it is in the growing in the middle of weeds, which consumes water, resources and space, it struggles to grow and produce more fruit. The same goes for the church. If the bad seed are among the good seed in the church, they will continue to consume the attention of the good seed, distract it and even confuse it by introducing wrong things. The devil has done this from the church in the beginning. Okay, so this is not something new that's happening just in our day. This has happened from the beginning when the church was actually started. So if you go to with, turn with me to Matthew chapter 7, verse 15, Jesus actually warns about this in his preaching before the church started. And for those of you who are wondering, when did the church actually start? The church actually started on the day of Pentecost. And most of you are familiar with that. When the Holy Spirit came down upon the, uh, the apostles and the disciples in that upper room, and they were born again. Okay, so the church started on that specific day. Before that, there was no church. There was Israel. There were those who believed in God. But the, the church represents the New Testament, the new agreement that God now has with man. And that started at Pentecost. So before that, Jesus was ministering to people, telling them about the coming of this kingdom and this new agreement that God has made with man and that he was the, the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. Matthew chapter 7, verse 15, gives them a, pre, a warning about this. He says there, Beware of false prophets, which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. You shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes or thorns or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. Now, just keep that in mind, because this perfectly aligns with this particular parable, in that there are either weeds or there is wheat. The wheat can only produce more wheat, but the weeds can only produce more weeds. And this is the point, isn't it? Apart from the, apart from the warning about the false prophets, people who look like a sheep, they look like genuine Christians on the outside. There is the obvious thought and lesson here that these false prophets, these people who come in God's name, can't produce good fruit. And this is in two ways. Not only will they produce, not only uh, will they will not produce good seed, in other words, proper teaching from the word of God, they will not teach from the Bible, but they will not be able to produce real believers. They will produce more of themselves. They will make more people like them. Their followers will also be false believers. And the Apostle Paul experienced this very thing when he was planting the churches in various places in Asia Minor and Greece and those types of places. When he, when he had to leave the church at Ephesus and he was telling them that he was about to go, he called all the leaders to himself and he warned them about what would come. And it was almost verbatim. It was perfectly in line with the warning that Jesus gave. Have a listen to Paul's words to the church leaders in Ephesus 
when he shared with them that he was about to leave and may never return. In Acts chapter 20, verse 28, he says to those leaders of the church in Ephesus, he said, take heed, therefore, unto yourselves and to all the flock, over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers. In other words, to protect it, to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. So Paul was worried about wolves coming in and trying to destroy the flock. But look at verse 30. He says, also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. Paul knew exactly what Jesus was warning his followers about when he warned the leaders of the church in Ephesus when he was about to leave. Have things changed since those days? Well, no. What we find at the end of the world, a time that is yet to come, that it will be a time filled with deception. Deception, as we're talking about here, the devil being the great deceiver and trying to mix false with the good, will be this deception at the end will be so convincing that even the true believers, Jesus says, may be even deceived, may be fooled into thinking it's right. So in Mark chapter 13, verse 22, Jesus warns those who are, who are living in the end times, he says, for false Christs and false prophets shall rise and shall show signs and wonders to seduce, if it were possible, even the elect. Now you might say, oh, how could that possibly fool the elect? You mean the real ones? Yeah. Well, if they're showing signs and wonders, if they're, show, if they're doing miracles, that's a pretty convincing argument, isn't it? To say, hang on a sec, this looks legit here. If they're doing signs and wonders in the end, it may even fool the elect that these people are genuine. It doesn't mean they lose their salvation or anything like that. What it means is they'll be fooled into thinking that these false prophets uh, may be legitimately from God. So good seed will produce more good seed, but bad seed will produce more bad seed. So let me ask you today, looking at Christianity in the world today, tell me how much of what we see of what is called Christianity today is good or bad seed? How much of it is mixed? What sort of job has the devil done? Well, if we look at the state of the Christianity today, we can easily see that he continues to do what he's done from the beginning. In fact, he's done quite a, a reasonable job of mixing the good with the, of mixing his bad seed within the good seed and confusing everyone. So the devil continues this tactic to this day. This is the reason that we have so many conflicting denominations, that we see so many cults in the world, and that we have so many false doctrines. The devil has placed evil people in positions of authority. They may look on the outside to be genuine sheep of his, but inwardly they are wolves. 
And he's put the, and the devil has managed to put those people in places of authority and power over the last 2,000 years. And they have introduced heresy after heresy into the church. They have deflected people from understanding the word of God. They have produced totally wrong fruits. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, the scribes and the lawyers were examples of these types of people in Jesus' day. They were people in authority and power. They should have been the ones to have recognized the Son of God, that he was a fulfillment of all that prophecy. They knew the Bible, but they refused to receive him. And you could extend this particular type of person to the popes throughout the ages. There have been plenty and plenty of evil popes, people who have taught wrong doctrine, who have led people astray for the last 2,000 years. And this is an example also in cult leaders who have led people away from the word of God. But this parable introducing introduces something quite intriguing. It teaches the devil actively directs certain individuals to enter a church and to call themselves Christians in order to disrupt the real church and cause division and confusion. But the Bible tells us that it's the Lord who adds people to his church. Acts chapter 2 verse 46 and 47 explains exactly that. In Acts 2.46, we see the beginning of the church here, straight after Pentecostal. At Pentecost, when Peter gives his sermon, and we see 3,000 people being saved in one day. And then we see the early church starting to form. And it says there, and they continued daily with one accord in the temple. You see, there was no other church in that day. There were no church buildings. They were just in Jerusalem. It started there. And where were they meeting? They were meeting in the temple. And it says that after they meet with the temple, they would go back to their homes and break bread together. And it says in verse 46 of Acts chapter 2, did eat their meat or their food with gladness and singleness of heart. Verse 47, praising God and having favor with all the people. And look what it says at the end of this verse. And the Lord added to the church daily, such as should be saved. It's the Lord who adds people to his church. But at the same time, the devil instructs people to come into the church with false doctrines, false understandings to cause division. You know, at faith at our church, we believe a person, we encourage people to become members of our church. But before they become members of our church, we normally want to see and hear a excuse me, a testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ and how they were saved by him. We want to understand, we want to see whether they actually understand what the gospel is all about. And then before they can become a member of our church, they need to be baptized by full immersion, the same way Jesus was, to go under the water as a picture of what God has done for them. Now, while this doesn't necessarily guarantee that every person that joins our church is genuinely saved, it goes a long way to protecting the church from false converts and is the way the Bible explains the way it should be done. But imagine for a moment that the devil wants to bypass his political system to get his people into a church and to circumvent the Lord's commands. How would he do it? 
How would he do it in a way that would cause most confusions and problems? Well, well, you start by taking away the word of God. You start by removing the true gospel and replacing it with a false gospel. That would be the first and most important way. And so the first and what we have seen throughout Christianity throughout the ages is that many churches now do not actually preach salvation by grace through faith. They preach a gospel of works, that you have to do this rule and follow that rule in order to come in, to, in order to be a Christian. They pronounce, announce a gospel of works rather than salvation as a gift. Rather than turning to Jesus and having him save you, asking him to save you, you try and save yourself. So you remove the gospel, you remove the word of God. And for a long time, the word of God, especially through the dark and middle ages of this world, we see the word of God being hidden from men, only in the hands of those who were the leaders. And I'll put that in inverted commas of the church. It's only in our latter days now, only from the, the 14 or 13 or 1400s did the word of God start to become then more popular and started to be, because of the printing press, being put back into the hands of people so they could read it for themselves. But for a long time, for hundreds of years, the word of God was locked up. The gospel was not pronounced and people were deceived. So you, first of all, if you were the devil and you wanted to cause confusion, you get rid of the gospel, get rid of the word of God. You then get people to believe that you have to work your way into heaven. But the important thing to do is to call yourself a Christian by saying you believe in Jesus Christ. Therefore, this person will have no testimony of salvation because they don't know what salvation actually is. They're trying to save themselves. Finally, you would remove the necessity of being baptized after you are saved, which is the way the Bible always describes it. And what you do is you replace it with infant baptism or baptizing babies. Why do I say that? Because if you baptize a baby, the baby can't be saved. A baby, a baby hasn't had a chance to, first of all, understand right or wrong, doesn't know about the gospel, doesn't know about Jesus Christ. And so by baptizing that baby and pretending that it's now in the church, you actually create and flip around what the Bible actually teaches about salvation where you come to the Lord first, you're saved, and then you're baptized and added to the church. So instead of reversing that around, what you end up, end up doing is you create a group of people, you create people within the church who have been baptized as a baby, believing all of their lives that because they've been baptized, they've already been added to the church, and all they have to do is say, that, well, I'm a Christian. I believe in Jesus. I believe he died on the cross. There are an innumerable number of people who call themselves Christians in this world who have ultimately put their trust not in Jesus to save them because they couldn't have done it when they were a baby, 
but later on have put their faith in an institution, in an organisation, run by fallible and sometimes very evil men who themselves have trusted in the organisation or institution. But let me tell you, let me ask you today, if you've put your faith in a church organisation, and I don't really care whether you're Presbyterian or Baptist or Catholic or Greek Orthodox or whatever you want to call yourself, if your faith is in your organisation to save you and not Jesus and His through his word, then you have put your faith not in God, but in man. Rather than trusting in Jesus Christ for your salvation, to save you through his word, you've trusted in men for your salvation. And you may be in peril of eternal damnation. Because if you've been baptized as a baby, the odds are, and you haven't understood the problem with that, the odds are you've never really put your faith in Jesus Christ, but are trusting in an organization to save you. And you know what? Numbers can get really big if you baptize every person that's born. Because every person that's born automatically gets added to the thing, even though it's not the way Jesus had intended it. But numbers can swell like that. That's what is outlined in the parable of the woman with the leaven. You may have noticed, if you've read, uh, if you went through the Bible reading this morning, that Jesus gives this parable, the parable of the uh, the wheat and the tares, and then he gives a few other little parables, like in between, and then he gives the explanation after that. Now, why would Jesus do that? He's done that because those parables in between are reinforcing the same thing. And I want to share with you that one at the moment, because the reason, one of the reasons the church became so big, and now apparently we have 2.3 billion Christians in, on this, in this world, the reason it became so dominant in Europe especially is because of this thing of baptizing babies. But look at what Jesus says. Look at Matthew chapter 13, verse 33. Because this is one of those parables between the parable of the wheat and the tears and the explanation, which is only clarifying what's going on in the parable of the wheat and tears. And in one verse, he gives us another parable. It says in verse 33, Another parable spake he unto them, The kingdom of heaven is like unto leaven, which a woman took, and hid in three measures of meal, till the whole was leavened. You know what he's talking about. You have wheat, you have flour, you mix up water in it, and you put yeast inside, and you work it through, and the yeast spreads itself all through the actual dough. The woman, in this particular case, represents a religious system. In this case, a false one. Once again, the bread is a good thing. Bread is not a bad thing. It's nourishing. It's what God has given to us. But she spreads yeast throughout it. And by her efforts, she makes it go through the whole lump. And what does yeast do? It feeds on sugars, on sugar. It ferments and it creates 
air. The reason that your bread rises, your lump of dough rises, is because as the yeast is feeding, it creates gas. And that gas, when it spreads throughout the whole dough, creates little bubbles of gas within the dough. It causes the dough to rise. Is there any extra bread created? No, it's an illusion. It's not more bread than what you started with. It's exactly the same number of bread, uh, the amount of bread. But what's happened is it's become filled with air, with emptiness. And this is what happened to the church. The yeast is a picture of sin, corruption, false doctrine, and people who don't really believe in God, but were added to the church without ever really being saved. And this spreads throughout the dough and it makes it get bigger and bigger and bigger. But most of it is just empty air. This is what happened to the church in the early days. The devil knew that he could play this game and he has done it to great effect. There is plenty of yeast, false doctrine, which has swelled the numbers to where many, many people call themselves Christians in the world today. But the vast majority of them are not even believers. The Bible tells us that there will only ever be a small number of believers, those who truly believe. Which leads me to the other parable, sandwiched between the parable of the wheat and tares and the explanation. Look at this, look at verse 31 and 32. Jesus gives another parable, which is the parable of the mustard seed. In that parable, it says, verse 31, Another parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like unto a grain of mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all seeds. But when it is grown, it is the greatest among herbs, and becometh a tree, so that the birds of the air come and lodge in the branches thereof. That's an interesting uh, parable when you think of it. And the church did start off as something very, very small. Like Israel, the church started off very humbly, very small, and grew very quickly. And in the early days, this caused a fair amount of grief for the Jews and for the pagan leaders in the Roman world who didn't like Christianity spreading around because people weren't following their gods and buying their little idols, and it caused a fair amount of consternation. And for the Jews, uh, the Jewish leaders, like the Pharisees and the Sadducees, Christianity was an absolute threat because it threatened to take them away from their power. But to this end, the church is much like Israel as well. Listen to God's description of Israel, his people. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6 to 8, listen to the way God describes Israel when, when he was saving them from Egypt. He said, For thou art an holy people unto the Lord thy God. The Lord thy God hath chosen thee to be a special people unto himself above all people that are upon the face of the earth. That's why we call them God's chosen people. In verse 7, he then says, The Lord did not set his love upon you, nor choose you because you were more in number than any people. He didn't choose you because you were the biggest nation, the most powerful nation. For you were the fewest of all people. God chose you because you were the smallest. 
Why did God choose you? But because the Lord loved you, and because you would keep the oath which he had sworn unto your fathers. Hath the Lord hath the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand, and redeemed you out of the house of bondmen from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt? Did God choose the greatest nation on the earth to represent him? No, he actually says he chose Israel because they were the fewest of all people and he could bestow his love upon them and he could also reveal his power through them. If Israel was a small seed chosen by the Lord, then the church of Jesus Christ, the real church, is a smaller seed which came from that little seed. The disciples of the Lord were indeed very few in number when the church began and Jesus was ultimately rejected by Israel. So the church really started as a small and tiny seed from a small and tiny nation. But the difference is that the church would grow into a large tree. But look what happened. The tree ended up being occupied by birds. Now you might think that's nice. I like birds in my backyard. Some people put uh, seeds in their backyard to attract the birds. But the birds in this parable, like the yeast in the, the parable of the, the, the woman, they're not good. They're actually bad. The birds represent something evil. The birds living in a tree, living in that tree, are a picture of the tree being hijacked by false teachers and feeding off the seeds that that tree produces. The tree, instead of being a tree that produces fruit for God, becomes a tree producing fruit for the birds. Just to reinforce this, because what's amazing is that God always reinforces his word in one place and then he reinforces it somewhere else. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 18. We're gonna look at verses one to five and we're going to find that in the final days, before the Lord returns to this earth, um, there's going to be a judgment that takes place, and the judgment is upon a woman. This is what the Bible calls the Hall of Babylon. And I want you to take very special note of the symbols that God gives us in this particular uh, uh, portion of scripture in Revelation and compare it to the parable in these parables that I've just uh, uh, these are, that I've just shared with you now okay the parable of the woman with the yeast and the parable of the um, uh, the mustard seed and the leaven and the and the birds in that tree have a look at Revelation chapter 18 verse 1. And after these things, I saw another angel come down from heaven, having great power, and the earth was lighted with its glory. And he cried mightily with a strong voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and is become the habitation of devils, and the hold, the fortress, of every foul spirit and the cage of every unclean and hateful bird. Why, do, why are they referred to birds? Why are devils referred to birds? Because they can fly around. Look at verse 3. For all nations have drunk of the wine 
of the wrath of her fornication. And the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her. And the merchants of the earth are waxed rich through the abundance of her delicacies. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, that ye may be not partakers of her sins, and that ye receive not of her plagues. For her sins have reached unto heaven, and God hath remembered her iniquities. Do you see the same figures in here? The woman kneading the yeast through the dough. In this particular um, passage in Revelation, the woman is called Babylon, a false religious system. She's called an adulterer. And this false religious system is inhabited by devils, foul spirits, and is the cage of every unclean and hateful bird. Where is she fornicated? Well, she has traded the love of God, the truth of God, the gospel of God for riches, power and influence. She is a corrupt religion which has corrupted the true church of God. What is God's advice to anyone aware of this truth? He says, come out of her, my people, because of her false doctrines and heresies. Now, I'm not sure where you're listening from today, but if you hear these words and you believe you're trapped in a religious, a false religious system that is not in line with the word of God, that is teaching not the gospel of Jesus Christ, but something else, if this system is teaching you to trust in anyone else, asking you to pray to anyone else other than God himself, if you are trusting in anyone else other than the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation, you are trapped, the Bible says, in a false religious system. The Bible calls the whore of Babylon and she will be judged in the end. God is advising you to remove yourself from her. Now, I'm not talking about just one denomination here. I'm talking about many denominations that are teaching the false doctrines that we see around us, which don't conform to the word of God. And you might say, well, how do I know the people around me, whether they're true, whether they're false believers? Is it my, is it my job to see the, the people that are, the weeds around me or the tears that are around me. If I believe I'm genuinely saved and following the word of God, what do I do? Well, you know what? We struggle to distinguish between the difference between real and fake. I'm talking about people here. It's not the job of the wheat to determine the nature of the other plants growing around it. The wheat just got to do its job and grow and produce fruit for God. It's not our job to go pluck and trying to pluck out. A wheat doesn't try to pluck out uh, a weed. We can't see the heart, but we can be aware of the truth and be alert and be aware of what the devil is trying to do and trying to destroy the church and trying to create a false church. You'll notice in Matthew 13, 25, when did this particular enemy come and sow his seed? It says, well, he, he did that while men slept in verse 25 of Matthew 13. He says, but while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tears among the wheat and then 
when he's way. Then he nicked off. While men slept, he does it at night. While men slept, while men weren't paying attention. The devil is only able ever to introduce false seed into the church while men sleep, which is why we must always be on the alert to look out for false doctrines, to look out where people are telling us things that are not in the word of God, that are mixed up with other things, even mixed up with politics and those types of things, which is so prevalent in our day. Please, if you're a Christian, don't mix up politics with Christianity. Keep the word of God pure. Everything else should be outside of that. There are plenty, there is enough heresies going on out there to be distracted by politics in this world. There are plenty of people perverting the truth. The Bible and what's happened to the translations of the Bible are a perfect example of how the devil does his work. In the English language alone, he has managed to produce over 300 versions of the Bible. Does that cause, cause confusion? Of course it does. It's not only confusing, but what's important and that we understand is that the manuscripts from which the, all, pretty much all these other versions come from are coming from corrupted versions and manuscripts. And so they you can't translate something that's pure from something that's already corrupted. You can't produce good seed from bad seed, can you? And that's what's happened to the Bible in our day. There are plenty of versions of the of Bible in English language. There's the NIV, the TIV, the NRSV, the RSV. There's all different types of versions going out there. And you might say, well, which one's the one? Well, I'll tell you which is the one. The ones that are not translated from manuscripts which come from Alexandria in Egypt. A place where heretics like Origen and Clement rose up who thought it was a wonderful idea to take away things from the Bible that they didn't agree with. It comes from another manuscript which comes straight from the Vatican, which apparently held onto this copy in, under lock and key for about a thousand years. How can good seed come from bad? It can't. You see, the Bible is a picture What's happened to the Bible today is a picture of what the devil has done within the church. He continues to sow bad seed among the good to cause confusion. He inflates something. So today people look at it and say, how wonderful we have so many versions of the Bible in English. Isn't that a wonderful thing? Well, no, it's not. Just as it is people saying, two billion people saying they're Christians, but really aren't. The devil knows the only real way that we can determine the truth from a lie, the only way, the only system we, that God has given us to determine it through the Holy Spirit is the word of God, is his word. And so the devil has done his absolute best to corrupt that word. And if he can hide the truth of the Bible, then men will inevitably fall asleep. They won't be awake. The reason we hold to the authorised version, or what's commonly called the King James 
Bible, the KJV, is that it is one of the only Bibles that is not translated from corrupted texts or what are called the critical texts, which almost every modern translation is derived from. But with this word, we are able to be aware of the devil's tactics. That's why it's so important for everyone to be in the word of God, to be aware of what it teaches, to listen to the leading of the spirit within their lives. Because while men sleep, the devil sows more evil seed. This parable may sound pessimistic to you when you look at it and you say, oh, wow, what a bad picture that, you know, God plants, you know, people and saves them and, and makes a church and the devil's there throwing in uh, confusion and, and, and more and bad people and, and, and making all this sort of stuff. It may sound pessimistic to you, but it's meant to keep us alert to the devices of the enemy. But there's a promise that we have also from the Lord Jesus, a promise of hope and a promise of ultimate victory. And if you turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16, verse 16, you'll see that even though the devil may try and destroy the church of God, we know that he will never, ever be able to. In Matthew 16, 16, it says, And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. There's your gospel right there. Jesus is the Christ the saviour of the world, the one that was sent by God, and he is the son of the living God. He is both saviour and Lord. That's the gospel. In verse 17, Jesus, look at how Jesus responds to Peter. He says, And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven, and I say also unto thee, thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Upon what rock? He doesn't say, thou art Peter, and upon you I will build my church. He says, thou art Peter, and upon this rock. What is it? The proclamation that Peter just made. That thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus builds his church on that foundation, on himself. And he promises that the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Did you hear that promise? Despite the best efforts of the devil to corrupt the church, to destroy it, to bring it down, to deceive it, he will fail. The devil will not prevail. We will be victorious in the end, which is highlighted by the mention of the angels in this parable. The angels, from their spiritual perspective, which are invisible around us, they can see the true convert from the false. They can see it. We can't. But they've been told to wait until the final judgment to separate them, and they will. Let me just remind you, in Matthew 13, 39, just going back to that explanation, he says, the enemy that sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the world, and the reapers are the angels. As therefore the tears are gathered and burned in the fire, so shall it be in the end of the world. And the Son of Man shall send forth his angels, 
and they shall gather out of his kingdom, out of his kingdom, all things that offend, and them which do iniquity, and shall cast them into a furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. This is speaking about the final judgment. And the angels who have been told to hold off for the moment are in the end going to be let loose in the world, God's angels, to harvest those who are not real, who are fake. And in the end, just before Jesus returns, there will be a fake Christianity and it will be filled with people that are not real Christians. Look at what it says in verse 47. Because it's very similar, these parables are very similar to another one that he just gives us. Have a listen to this. Matthew 13, 47. And again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a net that was cast into the sea and gathered of every kind, which when it was full, they drew to shore and sat down and gathered the good into vessels, but cast the bad away. And so shall it be at the end of the world. The angels shall come forth and sever the wicked from the just and shall cast them into the furnace of fire and there shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. See, it mentions the same thing. The kingdom of heaven is like a big net that's drawing all different, different people into it. The gospel has gone and, and drawn all different people into it. The kingdom of heaven, where people are calling themselves Christians, but they're not. And then there are Christians and they, they really are. They're all drawn in together. But in the end, they're separated. The bad ones are thrown into a furnace, which is representative of hell. And the good ones are collected and given to God. This is a picture of all types of people, saved and unsaved, drawn into the church's net. And we must exist altogether until the very end when the angels will be involved. Is there any scripture that speaks about this harvest in the Bible? Yes, as God always does, he gives us an explanation, a backup in another place. Turn with me as we look at this final uh, job the angels had to do in Revelation chapter 14, verse 14. We're going to look at this final harvest, okay? This final reaping, this final separation of good and the bad. Look at Revelation 14, 14, okay? Now you'll notice there's going to be two things over here. One is the Lord Jesus Christ who collects, uh, collects believers to himself, and then the other one is an angel who is reaping. Revelation 14, 14 says, And I looked, and behold, a white cloud. And upon the cloud one sat like unto the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. What do you do with a sickle? You cut the wheat to bring it in, to harvest. Verse 15, And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him that sat on the cloud, to the Lord Jesus, Thrust in thy sickle and reap, for the time is come for thee to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. And he that sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. Jesus caused the believers to himself. Revelation 14, 17 then says, And another angel came out of the temple which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, which had power over, look at what it's got power over, fire. 
and cried with a loud loud cry to him that had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in thy sharp sickle, and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. And the angel thrust in his sickle into the earth, and gathered the vine of the earth, and cast it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden without the city, and blood came out of the winepress, even unto the horse's bridles, by the space of a thousand and six hundred furlongs. That's quite a dramatic picture of the final judgment. And the picture is that God harvests, harvests these grapes that are not really connected to the vine of God, but are a fake vine and they're bad grapes and God squeezes them in a wine press of his judgment. This is a description of the final harvest. The Lord reaps a good fruit to himself. The angel reaps the bad fruit and judgment is upon them. The result is the same. The imagery is very harsh. Just like the bundles of tares being brought together in bundles, but then thrown into a fire, the same says that these people will be judged by the Lord and thrown into hell. We see, according to the Bible, outside the, or within the church, there are two types of people. And I'm talking about the visible church that we see around us that there are those who are saved and there are those who are not. And there will be many, the Bible says, that will one day stand before the Lord and say, oh, we believed in you. We did all these wonderful things. And Jesus' response will be, I never knew you. And he says, depart from me. So Jesus makes it very clear. Not everyone in Matthew 7, 21, not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, not everyone who calls Jesus Lord is going to be saved. He says, not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he that doeth the will of my Father, which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, when they stand before his judgment seat, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils? And in thy name have done many wonderful works. And the most scariest thing is this particular verse, is his response to them, who thought themselves to be fine. And he says in verse 23, And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. In the end, the bad seed that has been sown by the devil will be reaped and will be judged. And the good seed that has been sown by God, which represents genuine believers, will be gathered into heaven. The most important thing for you today who are listening to this sermon is to be fully convinced in your own mind whether you are saved or whether you are not. If you are trying to earn your way into heaven today, then my warning to you is this. You're probably not saved. Because salvation does not come by your efforts or my efforts. That wouldn't be salvation. 
everything else in your life will flow from whether you are saved or whether you are not. This is not about trying harder. Otherwise, Jesus would have said, try harder to become a Christian. Try harder to be a good Christian. But this is all about whether you have genuinely trusted Jesus to save you or whether you have not. I know that the majority of people who are listening to this sermon know the Lord Jesus as their Lord and their Saviour. But I'm not an angel. I can't see your heart. I can't see you from a spiritual perspective. I can only encourage you to trust Jesus to save you, to turn away from idols, to turn away from your own works, to turn away from trusting in man and whatever man has to tell you and turn to the word of God and see what it has for you and trusting in Jesus to save you. Because it's not the church that saves you. It's not your parents that save you. It's not being baptised that saves you. It's not being having your name in a church registry that saves you. Only faith in Jesus will save you. Because God will give you the grace for salvation. If you aren't sure today about your salvation, if you're wondering, am I one of the bad seed or one of the good seed? Compare yourself to the standard of the word of God. And if you're struggling to understand it, please make contact with us. Speak to another Christian. Speak to someone who does know the word of God, who isn't trusting in their church to save them, who isn't trusting in a denomination or isn't trusting in their works or isn't trusting in someone who you see fruit in their life, someone who is speaks about Jesus, someone who has Jesus in their life and is the centre of their life. Speak to that person or email us. Send us a message here at church. We'll get back to you. We're more than happy to have that conversation with you. God bless you. I pray you've been blessed by this message today. If you're a believer today and you know it, stand firm upon his word. Stay within it. Be alert. The devil has not stopped working and will not stop until the end. But have confidence in Jesus Christ, your Saviour, who will keep you until the end. God bless you all. I pray you have a wonderful week. Stay in the word. And remember, Jesus is Lord of all. God bless you. Thank you.